Did you watch the Netflix series Narcos? First two seasons are based on the story of Pablo Escobar. He's a drug lord, he's a narco-terrorist, who became the wealthiest criminal in history. The time of his death, the founder and sole leader of the Medellin cartel had amassed a fortune of 30 billion. That's like $65 billion today. From the 80s to the early 90s, despite the efforts of the DEA and various organizations, despite the efforts of his opposition, Escobar's cartel ships 70 to 80 tons of cocaine each month in the United States, and his former justice made Colombia the murder capital of the world. And fear in Colombia tonight. Colombia's drug bosses struck back today, bombing and burning buildings and homes in Medellin, a stronghold of the drug cartel where troops this week carried out dozens of raids. Among the first Today, my guest is Robert Mazur. Robert Mazur is the author of The Infiltrator, a memoir about his two-year undercover infiltration of Pablo Escobar's Medellin Cartel and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. In the 1980s, as a U.S. Customs Special Agent, he took down Pablo Escobar's money laundering organization by going undercover as a corrupt business person. In 2016, The Infiltrator was released as a major motion picture starring Brian Cranston. Bob, you're undercover. You gotta do what you gotta do, man. Anything to stay alive, man. Bob, I know these people, man. Hey, I'm alive, aren't I? Oh my God, you're a piece of work, Bob. And he is the author of The Betrayal, another memoir, and this time about his two-year undercover infiltration of the Cali Cartel and underworld figures in Panama. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Robert Mazur, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much for the invitation. As an undercover officer for the U.S. Customs Service, you're directly responsible for one of the biggest busts against Escobar's meddling cartel in the 1980s. What got you to that place? What brought you into your career chasing down criminals or amassing great fortunes? And why did you really put all the chips on the line going after one of the biggest targets, if not the biggest criminal target in the world? Well, I'd like to say it was a plan, but it was actually by accident. I, uh, in college, in my junior year, I was looking for a summer job and uh, part-time during, uh, during school. And I went to a jobs board and there was this uh, offer for a position called a co-op student with one of the federal agencies. It was actually the intelligence division of the IRS, kind of an oxymoron there. But um, anyway, it, it was the uh, criminal division of the IRS going after uh, mobsters and drug traffickers and corrupt politicians from the same, the Al Capone approach, I'll call it, you know, where they hadn't reported the income from their illegal activities. So when I got in that office, um, I really didn't know what the heck they did, but, um, and, and I didn't have any important jobs. I'm basically making coffee and copies. And, uh, but one of the groups that I worked with for a while was the organized crime group. And they were doing a case on a guy by the name of Frank Lucas, who later became the subject of a Denzel Washington uh, film called American Gangster. He was the biggest heroin trafficker in New York at the time. And um, we were working the money side of it. We knew that he was uh, taking, having his cash taken to a bank aptly called Chemical Bank at the time. And um, so we set up in surveillances. I wasn't out on the surveillances. I heard this from the guys. And, um, and so they, they documented the fact that duffel bags of cash were going into these particular officers 
who were depositing the cash and not reporting the cash transactions. And ultimately, it made a case on uh, on the bank and the bankers. And also, it, it gave a clear view of following the money to the power, the command and control. And I, and I saw how unbelievably powerful that was from an investigative standpoint. I was otherwise on my way to becoming an, uh, a CPA. I was a business administration finance major. I had all but one uh, course that I needed to take for a, for my accounting degree. Um, but after I had that, uh, that job, um, I decided that that's where I wanted to go. I applied uh, when I uh, graduated and I got a job there as a, a special agent which um, then gave me my first 11 years in uh, in law enforcement. I moved on from there to what's now Homeland Security Investigations. And I was working on a task force that was responsible for attempting to identify the major money launderers servicing the Medellin cartel. You got to think back into the 80s. I mean, the Medellin cartel was off the rails. Uh, in Miami, it was machine gun fire in, in Dadeland Mall. There were murders left and right. Um, and so we were trying to go on the money side of it. We had limited success and then realized we needed another tool in our toolbox. And that was the long-term undercover technique and long-term undercover agents that could be properly trained and equipped to infiltrate the financial side of the Medellin cartel. That's not a job you, you do without volunteering. And I volunteered, um, we needed someone to be uh, developed as a, an apparent money laundering source, a corrupt businessman. My colleagues, most of them were criminal justice majors, and but I wasn't, you know, and I had worked in a bank and a brokerage firm. Um, I had my IRS background, so, you know, books and records and companies don't scare me. And, um, and so I first was psychologically profiled. Um, somehow I slipped through uh, and I was accepted as a candidate and I went through the undercover school uh, actually, the psychologist who was there um, uh, was uh, from the University of Ottawa, who is a psychologist who uh, specializes in the psychological impacts of, of undercover work and long-term undercover work. His name is Mike Giroto. And, um, and so uh, with, with psychological uh, support and with uh, experienced trainers, uh, I got through uh, the uh, undercover training, learned a lot, was really given tremendous assets, and then spent about a year and a half putting together the front we used to infiltrate the Medellin cartel. So, you know, someone that's kind of trained in business administration, banking, IRS, I wouldn't necessarily profile as having a great appetite for risk, certainly risk where you're going to risk your life, potentially your family's life. When did you kind of switch internally and go, this is the life, these are the tight ropes I wanted to walk versus maybe the comfort of knowing that there's truth in numbers? Well, I, I became a law enforcement officer for the same reason that probably 99.9% of, of the officers uh, take that route in a career, and that's to be a part of making a difference. And my view always was that making a difference meant getting the evidence that the biggest evidence, the, the biggest targets uh, that no one else could uh, appear to be able to make. And, and um, I never wanted to go into management. I only wanted to stay on the street. And I, I come from a family that uh, I think values uh, service to country. My, you know, my family, I, if I had to categorize our family motto, it would be family first and countries and country shortly after. My dad was a 
a World War II vet, had fought in many, many battles. Um, never talked about it that much, but service to country was big. My mom was a civilian employee of the um, army and my brother served in Vietnam. And this was my opportunity to serve my country. Did, did your parents, were they alive? Did they have the faculty to understand what you're about to accomplish? Yeah, you know, my mom and dad really didn't know, other than the fact that they knew that I was in deep cover, they didn't really know what it was all about. And, and probably not until I wrote my first book, The Infiltrator, about that uh, long-term immersion into the underworld. Um, I remember my dad pretty much with his jaw dropped down and shocked and said, I, I can't believe what you've done. Um, and and But my wife knew um, what was happening because I called her probably every second or third day um, just so she'd know where I was. And she's always watched my back all my life. We have been best friends since she was 16 and I was 18. And um, uh, she's a rock. And if it wasn't for her, there's a lot of long-term undercover agents that do this type of work that for various reasons uh, lose the bond with their family. Uh, and I can guarantee you without my rock, um, uh, many people who took the course of that I did would be uh, very lonely uh, men right now. The United Nations on Drugs and Crime pegged the amount of money seeking secrecy from governments every year or seeking money laundering services at about $2 trillion. And of that, about $400 billion a year from the sale of illegal drugs. That's a lot of money. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest, Robert Mazur, who spent two years undercover infiltrating the Medellin cartel and the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. So, Robert, you're certainly proving yourself as an agent. You've gone to undercover school, but how did you put your hand up? And from what I understand, you were a major part of the strategy in terms of how going undercover could be the straw that breaks his money laundering back. So take us back to that moment when you knew you were the one that was going to lead and be very involved in planning it out. You know, when we went through the undercover school, part of it is uh, teaching you how to um, analyze facts and develop a, a meaningful undercover plan. Usually the case agent, the person who's directing everything is not an undercover agent. And so initially I was the case agent. I came up with the design. My partner, um, who's a tremendous undercover agent, more of a street guy. The plan was, as I wrote it out, that if we got past stage one, and we went to stage two. Then I would come on stage to be the Mr. Big behind the curtain. Through informants, he was introduced to some lower level money brokers who had very high personal relationships, high level personal relationships within the Medellin cartel. This lower level money broker, I call him lower level because he could only handle probably $50,000 a week. He went to high school with Fabio Ochoa, 
who was one of the board members of, of the Medellin cartel, and he knew many of the people who were in control of the Medellin cartel. So my partner dealt with him. And another thing that we learn, of course, in the, in the undercover school is, you know, how is it that we're going to attempt to uh, enhance rapport and communication and manipulate circumstances where people are eager to tell you their secrets? So my undercover partner's position by plan always was, you know, my boss is the one who helps us to open up these accounts but he never wants to come out of the shadows. He doesn't want to deal with you guys. He thinks it's too risky. So you're going to have to deal through me. But man, if you could ever meet him, the rivers of money that you could launder are unbelievable. So after hearing that for three or four months, you know, they were demanding. They wanted to meet me. By then I had spent about a year and a half putting together what I think is one of the more sophisticated fronts ever used in this type of undercover approach. I was um, embedded in real businesses with the help of a couple of informants. I wanted, I knew, you know, I'm not going to be carrying a gun. I'm not going to be carrying a badge. My life is going to be protected by the quality of the front that I put together. I was completely believed by the people within the Medellin cartel. And, and I had a money laundering methodology that I shared with them so they understood why it was safe. But eventually they came to me and they said, uh, you know, the ultimate payout to us in our Panamanian checking accounts that are dollar accounts in Panama are coming from U.S. dollar accounts that you have within the borders of the United States. That's got us nervous. Uh, we need you to open up accounts in Panama. So my feeling was that we're not going to go to a major institution like HSBC or Bank of America and go to their security department and get their help to open up accounts in Panama. My feeling was, listen, I've spent now almost two years putting this front together. I'm going to do the same thing that anybody in a, in a uh, private client division of a bank as a client does. And that is I'm going to call a bank and I'm going to ask for an appointment. But you got some pushback when I understand that when you wanted to do this and just go and do it as an individual, there were people within your department that felt that was but too dangerous or wasn't the right strategy? When I went through the undercover schools and I went through two of them, one of the things drilled into my head was, listen, people in headquarters are going to offer you all kinds of opportunities for uh, contacts that'll open up bank accounts and credit cards and get you this, that, and the other thing. To the extent that you can do it on your own and not use them, do it on your own. And, and the reason for that is that, believe me, if somebody in headquarters in the undercover division uh, is going to get me an American Express credit card, there's a file somewhere at American Express that says that if this account is overdrawn, contact special agent so-and-so in Washington, D.C. And I don't want those kinds of potential threads that are to be related to anything that I'm doing. And there was no huge plan to go after BCCI because they had a reputation for being involved in handling accounts with illicit funds. I didn't find that out until after I was already there. And so I called him and I said, listen, uh, I, when I sat down, I said to him, I'm a financial advisor to clients in Medellin, Colombia. These men have businesses in the United States that generate massive amounts of capital. And it's my job to help them at times to move that capital across borders in a very quiet way. So the guy says to me, um, well, do you have a need? Because I explained that I wanted to move some money of theirs from Panama into the U.S. to buy some property. He said, do you have a need to move it in the other direction, out of the U.S.? And I said, yes. He goes, 
is it cash? I said, yeah. He said, well, my suggestion to you is you get yourself involved in as many cash generating businesses as you, as you can. Only the stupid people get caught. So there was no doubt he knew exactly what I was all about without us really saying in, in full ex- explicit words what was going on. I read in an article in Men's Journal that you said something to the fact that I was at my calmest when I was within a circle of bad people and gangsters. I would have to think the majority of people walking in wired, a briefcase is a recording device, in a circle of people that would think nothing had taken your lives, would have a hard time keeping those feelings in check. How did you do that? I knew that these people have a sixth sense. If I'm going to act abnormally in any fashion whatsoever, you speak not just with the words you say, but the type of words that you say, your body language. Unfortunately, um, my partner and I ultimately came to the conclusion that because the bad guys had bought our act 100%, when they said something uh, that they were going to do, they did it. On the other hand, you know, we're dealing with multiple law enforcement agencies in multiple cities and multiple countries. Greatest majority of the people in the middle are, are you know, well-intended and they're not going to do anything that's going to try to hurt you. Some of them are going to go out of the way to really, really help you. And some of them aren't really going to care. And they're going to do things that they think is going to benefit them and their piece of the case. I can give you a prime example of that. I've been in Europe with, among other people, the consigliere of Pablo Escobar, his lawyer, his main advisor. At the the end of that meeting, they had agreed that they were going to use us to uh, receive about $100 million in cash, put it into a nest egg for them over in Europe in case they had to flee. So we started receiving a million to $2 million every other day on the streets of New York. And I begged the agents in New York to be very, very uh, sparingly using surveillance because there was no doubt that the bad guys were going to have counter surveillance out there. And there was no doubt that they knew what to look for to see people who they suspected were federal agents on surveillance. They had actually schooled me and said, listen, make sure your people are looking for guys that are like in their late 20s, early 30s. Most likely they're gringos, white guys. They're going to be wearing jeans, a pullover, solid shirt with collar, fanny pack, that's where their gun is hidden. Well, I hardly ever went to an office while I was in deep cover, but I did go to the New York office one time to make this plea. And I walked in the room and virtually everybody was a gringo between their late 20s and early 30s with jeans, pullover shirts that were solid with with collars and, and exactly what it is everybody said. Well, within the first $4 million of pickups, my partner got a call and in the back, a fellow by the name of Gerardo Moncada. And for you asked if people watch Narcos, the last two episodes of the first year, they talk about Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano. Those were my two principal clients. They managed Pablo Escobar's routes during that time frame. Gerardo Moncada was screaming that I had to be a DEA undercover agent because they saw all the surveillance that was on the streets. And now I had to talk my way out of that. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, and you're listening to Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Robert Mazur, undercovers Bob Musella, not only sets his sights on Escobar's Medellin cartel, he also goes after BCCI Bank, 
a bank that launders illicit funds for drug traffickers, illegal arms dealers, terrorists, tax evaders, corrupt third world leaders, and other criminals. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy, and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC and a big shout out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash smallbusinessnavigator. The people that I dealt with at that level would never, never use Coke. And if they knew people that were dependent upon Coke, and that they were drawing attention. One of the guys in Paris was acting that way. Escobar's lawyer came over to my partner and asked us if we would have the guy whacked. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Robert Mazur. No undercover agent in the world has infiltrated so deeply into the inner circle of financial crime. So, you know, you're talking your way out and you're, you know, you're trying to keep this calm and collective, but you're not just risking your life, your family's at risk. How do you balance that? I serve my family first, my country a close second. I get, I understand your loyalty, but that soulmate, that rock that you talked about earlier uh, could be turned over in a heartbeat. Well, that wasn't going to happen during the undercover operation because they didn't know you know, anything about my family. My, my family really was at greatest risk during the undercover operation to the psychological impacts of my being gone for extended periods of time. Um, and whether or not my wife, who luckily, you know, all the things that they tell you in the undercover school, you should make sure exist. Uh, I fortunately had my, my wife had a profession of her own. She's an educator. I had family, my parents and my brother and his family that lived close by them. So they had continued support. You know, you don't want to take an agent who's newly hired, transfer him to the other side of the country and, and him have a wife with an infant child and no family to support him. And that wife is in a completely new environment. That's a formula for disaster. But after the undercover operation, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, within 30 days, we had witnesses and an intercept that confirmed that there was a half million dollar contract on my life. So, uh, but I had anticipated that and I built another false identity, which my office allowed me to use. And, and we basically went underground for a couple of years. As you started to build your undercover persona, I was interested to, to read some of your stuff saying, you know, it was important that I used my first name and I did the details so that I could become that person. Take the audience through what it's like to knock on somebody's door as a completely new human being, but at the same time, a human being that you feel you can portray. What I was trained and, and what I did was that I tried to have to tell the least number of lies possible in this new skin of a new person. Robert Musella, who I created, had to have uh, some core issues that were in common with Robert Mazur. So Robert Musella was an Italian-American from the New York area who had a business background, could handle sophisticated international uh, banking transactions, and had businesses that could believably handle the laundering of tens of millions of dollars. A lot of it is true. What I was really lying about was what my real name was, why it was that I was 
moving this money. I wasn't moving it because I was a greedy, corrupt businessman. I was moving it because I was a federal agent and that was my responsibility. They put me through a lot of tests. And one of the tests is shown in the Infiltrator film where Brian Cranston goes to uh, a Santeria priest. You know, this Santeria priest evaluated me. Uh, I tried to act as natural as, as I, I could. And his verdict to the trafficker who was there was that he's an honest and honorable man. And I think that was true. I was honest and honorable, just not to them. <laughs> so, um, like I say, you just have to kind of be as natural as you can possibly be. It's a very tiring thing to have two brains moving at the same time. I have to act like Mosella, but I have to have my Mazer brain kind of helping shift the conversations in directions that are meaningful from an evidentiary standpoint without coming across like an agent. How do you go home though, as Robert Mazer, and suddenly become the father and, and the wonderful family man that you that you know everybody talks about how you are? It can't be an, an, that easy to to switch that switch. No, it's not. Um, and again, this comes back to my view to training and the psychologists that are involved in it that forewarn you about the importance of staying rooted and how to stay rooted and how to be the best you that you possibly can be. You know, while you're doing this stuff and you're being asked to live in their world, you also have to live in your world. So their world, as far as traffickers go, there would be, you know, nights we'd be out until two, three in the morning when that's over. You know, I've got to make notes. I've got to take the tapes and, and initial and date them. I've got to put some type of uh, notes together so I can call in what it is that's been happening. I, I want to stay in touch with the prosecutor who's involved in the case. I used to do that by payphone. My contact person in that city, the case agent, my wife. Um, I've got two lives to live. So I can't be not taking care of myself. So I have to eat well. I have to make sure that I continue to exercise and keep myself in the best shape that I possibly can. You know, if you don't pay attention to those types of things and you begin to fatigue, then you begin to make mistakes and you can make mistakes physically and you can make them psychologically. So, hey, there's a lot of officers that crash and burn. That's the heart of my new book, The Betrayal. Um, unfortunately, in that operation, one of the undercover agents that was working with me went bad. Was there ever a time where you felt your cover was blown? Yes, possibly blown because of the compromised surveillances. Um, those compromised surveillances happened in several cities. So increasingly, they were beginning to seriously suspect that I was an agent. Did you have to, you talk about your two lies, but you had to do your own due diligence to make sure that this army of agents supporting you took the same dedication to keeping you alive as obviously you did, right? Yeah. Let me tell you, at the height of the operation, there were probably 250 agents, intelligence officers, prosecutors, and administrative personnel who really, as a team, gave me the opportunity to do what it is that I'm doing. Uh, I want to make it really, really clear that I don't suggest by any means that I'm some lone wolf that made this thing happen. Take us now to the operation and the success that you realized. Because from what I understand, there's not another infiltrator in history that's gone as deep and accomplished as much as you did. And I, I know you're not a lone wolf. I know you give credit to the people behind it. But let's just say the team. 
what was the result of two years of infiltrating one of the most dangerous and corrupt cartels? Yeah, you know, and and uh, people judge success, especially our elected officials, on uh, arrests and seizures. So I guess that's that's where I will go. But we we seized uh, about thirty one hundred and fifty pounds of cocaine. We dismantled a cocaine pipeline. That's a system that's used to repeatedly move tens of thousands of kilograms of cocaine. Roberto El Cayeno, uh, portrayed in the film by Benjamin Bratt, had a very sophisticated operation set up that started in the jungles of Bolivia with a uh, cocaine lab that was producing about 6,000 kilograms a week. So that all got dismantled. There were about $600 million in fines and forfeitures. And a lot of major people who were associated with Moncada and Galeano and Escobar we arrested some very significant bankers, including a guy by the name of Amjada Wan, who was my financial advisor at BCCI, but he was also the financial advisor of Manuel Noriega. So as a result of my working with him and friendship with him, I was able to get very important information that related to Noriega and where his illicit funds were. The bank itself uh, was a $20 billion bank. It was... Uh, in 72 countries. And ultimately, in part because of this case and in part because of follow-up work that was done by other agencies, the bank imploded. You were right into the top of the inner circle of Pablo Escobar. Did you ever meet him personally? No. I was offered the opportunity to meet with him. My agency wouldn't let me go, said that they thought that it was too dangerous. I also had an invitation to meet directly with Manuel Noriega. And my office wouldn't let me go. And a lot has been talked about Escobar's sort of Robin Hood mentality of giving to the poor. Did you ever feel any sympathy for that organization? You know, Pablo Escobar, yeah, just like El Chapo Guzman, gave money to the poor, built houses, employed people. But I think that that was just part of a manipulation so that he had massive loyalty by everyone around him. Hundreds of the people that he hired, he hired to be Sicarios, murderers. He blew up a commercial airline because he thought that a person was on it that was expected to become the next president who was very anti-drug and anti-Medellin cartel. Um, he was vicious. Despite the warning signs, I refused to abandon my mission. My role as Baldessari had to continue. I now had two missions, salvage Baldessari's reputation in the underworld and risk my life to unveil the mole. I had to identify the rat that sold me out, convince him he was trusted and feed him misinformation. It was the only way to get the rock solid proof that would put the dirty agent responsible for this deadly betrayal behind bars. Unveiling this corruption would be the most high stakes mission I would ever accept. A mission that ended for some with life and for others, with death. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Robert Mazur. As this episode comes out, he's launched a new book called The Betrayal. Another true life story about another undercover assignment you carried out after you went and, and took Escobar's group cartel down. Tell us a little bit about what the betrayal's about and why you chose to go back undercover again, knowing everything that you had learned along the way about yourself and obviously the risks to you and your family. Well, the journey um, in the infiltrator story 
pretty much ended with the debriefing of the senior bankers, all of whom said, we don't understand why you're picking on us. We're not doing anything the rest of the international banking and business community is doing. I saw the opportunity of taking this assignment to infiltrate the Cali cartel as an opportunity for me to, at the same time, go after that segment of the banking and business community and to help the world know that that is, in fact, a reality. People don't trick people to launder money. With that, um, I was very eager. But a new identity. New identity, yep. One of the things about the betrayal is you actually are betrayed, but not by the underworld. From what I understand, someone within the organization. Tell us a little bit about that. One of the officers who was assigned to work with me, we worked very, very well together the first four months or so of the, of the operation. All of a sudden, in hindsight, it was the people that that agent had the opportunity to meet. But I began to lose credibility in some of the circles of the underworld. We had an informant in Cali at the highest levels of the Cali cartel, who was what you would call a non-testifying informant. It had been agreed that this person was not going to be outed in a trial. And that person was in a meeting when one of the people in the, in the meeting said, wow, we, we've really got a good thing going. We've got this cop. I don't want to give too much away because I want people to be excited about trying to figure this out in the betrayal. But, but ultimately, there was enough information provided in that meeting so that we knew who it was. And now the real job came. I believe that corruption is the most dangerous commodity exported by the underworld. And now I had someone close to me who was on that corruption train. And, you know, the final betrayal that I confront in the book is my betrayal to my family. I made a value judgment about my career and what I thought was important in life. Given the opportunity to do it again, my family would win out. And what happened? As a result of the choices that I've made, it's been, it's been a challenge, not as much with my wife as it has been with you know, with my kids, my, my daughter, keep in mind, my daughter was nine when I first went under in the uh, infiltrator story. By the time I finished everything in uh, the betrayal story, she was 17. So when we went to the infiltrator film premiere in New York, at that stage, my, my daughter was pushing 40. After the film, she came to me and we were alone and she said, uh, now I understand and I forgive you. Sometimes as parents, we don't realize we can't quick fix the emotional scars that develop. You know, can you imagine coming to your kids, which I had to, when the contract was identified to be on my life and say, all right, guys, we're, uh, we're going to be moving. We're not going to be able to be in touch with grandma and grandpa or any of the other family or the kids, or your friends for a while until we get this thing figured out. You're going to have to use a new name. My office wanted to put teams on us with, you know, heavy armory and armor and all that other stuff. And I said, no, that's not happening, man. My kids are already thinking that somebody's going to jump through the window. I'm going to have you guys around here with machine guns. And no, it's not happening. So I said, we'd be better off on our own. Ultimately, I put my gun and my badge on the desk and I said, Here's the choice, guys. It's my life and my family's life. You're either going to honor my request or I quit. And then you have nothing to say about it. 
and they decided that they would go my way. Robert, I always end my shows with the three things that I'm taking away that I've learned. And there's so much from your incredible story. The first one is a lesson in life about creating scarcity. And I love the way you set up the initial operation saying, you know, with having your other partners saying, you, you, well, if you ever meet my boss, it'll be a river of opportunity. And just scarcity, I think, is a very interesting lesson in life. The second one is your just level of preparation. And so often we we dive into dreams. And, and But I think, as you said, I was really good at dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But the third one, I think, is recognizing how as individuals, and I think this also plays true to entrepreneurs, we dive into purpose and passion and it's, and stand in that tightrope and it gives us adrenaline and energy and it's a dent we're going to put in the universe. But behind us, we have to realize that there's often a wake and that's the people that love us and care about us and are, are their lives. And I think it's wonderful that even though it took to 40, your daughter said, I forgive you because I do believe she had a lot to forgive because the dad that every girl needs uh, was out being one of the most successful undercover agents that the world has seen. So for all of that and so much more, I really appreciate you joining me in Chat of the Matters. Well, uh, it's a pleasure and uh, I appreciate your uh, interest uh, quite a bit. Last year, Adam Evans joined me with Dr. Ann Kavokian, the author of Privacy by Design, to talk about cybersecurity. And to give you a sense of credentials, Adam Evans is the Vice President of Cyber Operations and Chief Information Securities Officer for RBC. Adam, welcome back to Chat of the Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Now, with so much to talk about in such a short period of time, but I'm going to say you are one of the thought leaders on the economy of crime and clearly how much of it's moving online. Tell us how it's evolving and where it's heading. What you're seeing is this organized approach to crime and the democratization or the commoditization of crime. So you have people that are entering into this criminal underground and they've got platforms and services that they're offering up to other cyber criminals. So they are essentially franchising out crime. One-stop shop where you can go and you can find money laundering, you can find extortion tactics specialists, you can find data brokerage services. All of these things are, are being built in this underground economy. So my guest, Robert Mazur, talked about overall crime being $2 trillion. Where does cybercrime rank within that? <laughs> so what we've seen in, in 2021, there are numbers um, that, are, that are obviously being socialized you know, pretty broadly across the internet that, uh, that cybercrime is a $6 trillion a year industry. And by 2025, the estimations are that it's going to be a $10 trillion a year industry, which is outpacing, I believe, it's every other traditional form of crime combined. And what advice can you give to a business owner or a consumer to do their part in trying to fortify their assets? Whether you run a, a large institution, security in a large institution like RBC or, or you as an individual or a small, medium-sized business, it's understanding where your most sensitive information assets are. For an individual, it could be social media accounts and it could be their email address or their email inbox. When you're talking about small and medium-sized businesses, this could be their intellectual property. It could be their client lists. And then starting to educate yourself and prepare yourself for the eventuality of being compromised. And this is a this is a when event, not an if event, right? The more time we spend online, the eventuality, I think, is almost a certainty that you will be compromised in some way, shape or form. So if it does get compromised, that information asset, how do I recover? 
Who do I contact? Law enforcement, breach service providers, cyber coaches. So organizing before it happens uh, and understanding what you're trying to protect will help you move down the road uh, much, much faster in the event or when that event does happen to you. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.